I'm Dale Mason, publisher of Answers Magazine, and this is Creation Answers, a podcast of Answers in Genesis, featuring highlights from the award-winning Answers Magazine. In this episode, we'll hear two amazing stories showing how belief in God's creation opens scientists' eyes to new discoveries. The first story is about a professor at one of the United Kingdom's leading universities. He's Dr. Andy McIntosh. His belief in the designer led to new discoveries about one of the most amazing creatures in nature. It's a beetle that makes explosions at will. Wow. In 1903, the Wright brothers succeeded with controlled-powered flight because they asked the right question. How do birds use their wings? Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, wondered how we could hold a computer in the palm of our hand. He succeeded with the iPhone because he asked the right question. History is filled with engineers who asked the right question. From airplanes to smartphones, we couldn't imagine our lives without these modern inventions. While the names and technology above might be familiar to you, our story involves someone you might not know, Dr. Andy McIntosh, and the mystery he is trying to solve is on a much smaller scale than airplanes or smartphones. Andy has spent over 40 years in the fields of thermodynamics and engineering. For nearly 20 of those years, he's focused his attention on a little insect whose explosive tendencies have inspired exciting research and discoveries all pointing to the Creator. How can that be? A seemingly small incident in 2001 changed Andy's life. He was sitting in his office at Leeds University in England, where he had been conducting research for 15 years and would continue for another decade. While reading a copy of the Proceedings of the Natural Academy of Sciences, he noticed an article about the bombardier beetle, an insect that blows bursts of boiling water and chemicals out its rear end. Looking at high-speed photos of a bug blasting chemicals from its behind might fascinate most of us for only a few minutes. But not Andy. Someone with a doctorate in combustion theory doesn't look at the world the way we do. He knew that there must be more to the story. Biologists have known about the beetle since the early 1800s, when the first reports were published about beetles shooting artillery. Later in the 1960s and 1970s, the world's leading expert on the bombardier beetle Entomologist Thomas Eisner made some exciting discoveries about the beetle's complex chemistry, but many mysteries remained. What caught Andy's attention in the new report was the obvious evidence of combustion, his area of expertise. Something amazing must be going on for an insect to set off a series of explosions and then to machine gun its enemies. Andy wasn't interested in the bombardier beetle like a biologist might be, he was interested in the engineering and physics. As those who believe in creation, we know that God made this sophisticated chemical system, which includes specialized chemicals that make the reaction go faster, along with a combustion chamber, a movable exhaust turret, more versatile than a tank turret, the inlet and exhaust valves, and a sensory mechanism to determine from which direction the attack may be coming. Andy wondered if it were possible that the designer God had implemented some unique engineering solutions to miniaturized explosions that human industry might learn from and imitate, biomimicry, for the good of our fellow man. We may not know the explosive jet's purpose in the perfect world before Adam's fall, 
but Andy wanted to know more about the engineering applications today. He visited his university's biology department to see if anyone would be interested in learning more about the mechanics of this beetle's unique weapon system. To his surprise, one of the biologists was not only uninterested, but also questioned why Andy would bother. What do you hope to learn, since the beetle is still evolving? The lack of curiosity shocked Andy. I am interested in how things work. Since I knew the master designer designed animals, I expected to discover new insights into combustion and engineering. Rather than being a hindrance, my belief in God's creation opened a new research field. It was precisely because I believed in creation that I was spurred to ask the right questions. He reached out to the author of the Bombardier Beetle paper, Dr. Eisner, who was working at Cornell University. Little did Andy know what doors this decision would open for major research, which continues to this day, including new discoveries and patents. The work begins. For about six years, Andy worked off and on with Eisner at his Cornell University laboratory in Ithaca, New York. Eisner had access to electron microscopes that could take detailed images of the beetle's internal organs. Andy still remembers the light bulb moment he had during a visit with Eisner in March 2004. Biologists had long known that the beetle has an inlet valve controlling the flow of chemicals into the reaction chamber where the explosion occurs. But the mystery was that the chemicals don't naturally produce an explosion as strong as the blast captured in Eisner's images. The jet of steam and noxious chemicals, benzoquinones, fire repeatedly through nozzles at a speed of up to 65 feet or 20 meters per second. Then, in discussions with Eisner in his laboratory, Andy discovered the secret. When Eisner showed him scanning electron microscope images of the beetle's anatomy, Andy realized that it had another valve at the outlet. If the beetle can keep the chamber closed long enough, the pressure will build up without the water turning to steam, sort of like a pressure cooker. There it sat, where it had been all along, the membrane that served as an outlet valve. But nobody had realized its function before. It is generally limp under a microscope, like a deflated balloon. Up until this point, even Eisner hadn't considered that this was a valve. But after seeing the detailed imaging, Eisner agreed that the membrane was functioning in this way. So Andy had discovered that the beetle's blaster is a two-valve system, not a one-valve system. An example of exquisite engineering, as he called it. The other missing piece of the puzzle was whether a special kind of explosion, called a steam explosion, could account for the rapid ejection of the spray that Eisner had found. To cover that answer, Andy needed to identify the precise nature of the mixture the beetle released, how much of it was steam, and how much was liquid water and the noxious chemicals. The beetle's basic chemical cocktail has long been known, hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone. And scientists know that these chemicals don't react without a catalyst, a substance that speeds up a chemical reaction. The beetle has these catalysts in abundance, catalase and peroxidase. But how much will turn into steam before the concoction is released as an explosive spray? Here's where Andy's engineering came in, but he needed help from someone who could do advanced computer modeling. So he applied for a grant to hire an assistant. And to his delight, the grant was approved. The computer modeler analyzed what should happen if the outlet valve opens at 1.1 bar. One bar is the atmospheric pressure at sea level. At that pressure, the water will reach 221 degrees Fahrenheit, 
or 105 degrees Celsius, without boiling. Water normally boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, or 100 degrees Celsius. When the pressure is suddenly released, the water will instantly turn to steam in what's called flash evaporation. In the computer model, the steam explosion drove the water and steam combination within only two thousandths of a second. At that rate, the spray would eject about 500 cycles per second, exactly what Eisner had found in his experimental observations. So Andy and his assistant knew the computer had correctly simulated the insect's explosion. Mimicking the Beetle Blaster Andy and his partner published a technical paper and shared their astonishing findings at a conference. So intrigued by their work, an entrepreneur in the audience offered to continue funding the research if they were prepared to build an experimental rig to mimic the beetle's actions. The entrepreneur's special interest was biomimicry, and he believed Andy and his team could invent new technology if they took their research a step further. Andy was delighted, but he needed help. He was a theoretical engineer, more comfortable with mathematical calculations on a chalkboard. He explains, I never built stuff before, but we had some brilliant staff in the engineering department who were able to both design and build prototypes. Andy's team got to work. Their objective was to build a two-valve delivery system. The main aim was to demonstrate how the spray system worked. They also looked at the effects of varying the pressure, the timing of the spray, the distance traveled, and size of the spray droplets. Their goal was to produce a machine that sent an explosive jet as far as the beetles. And in time, they were successful. Unlike the Bombardier Beetle's passive valve system, which automatically opens and closes when the pressure reaches a certain point, Andy's rig uses advanced electronically controlled valves that a computer opens and closes on command. Their experimental chamber was about one inch, two centimeters long, 20 times bigger than the Beetle's reaction chamber which is only five hundredths of an inch, one millimeter. The beetle can spray two hundred times the length of its chamber, easily hitting a nearby ant on the forest floor. Andy and his team were delighted when their rig could spray two hundred times its size, thirteen feet, four meters across the room. In 2010, Andy and his lab partner received the prestigious Times Higher Education Award for the Outstanding Contribution to Innovation and Technology in London. Andy is still pursuing possible applications to industry and has three patents for the three main applications of this invention. Injectors for fuel additives in engines for more efficient burning, pharmaceutical sprays, and fire extinguishers. Now in retirement of sorts, Andy is working with students in the U.S. at Liberty University's engineering department to develop a fire protection system that could better protect firefighters during a wildfire. Andy's plan is to develop backpacks filled with water that could shoot steam and water spray up to 50 feet, 15 meters. See bombardierbeetle.org for the latest on this creationist research project. Beetle Bombardiers in Every Clime and Place Nearly 1,000 known bombardier beetle species come in every shape and color, with an array of arsenals. They're found in clusters under rocks on every continent except Antarctica. Bombardier beetles fall into two subfamilies, exploding and non-exploding types. Exploding bombardier beetles. Brachininae, over 500 species. These common beetles produce precisely aimed sprays shot through rotating turrets on their rear. 
These are the most familiar and studied bombardier beetles. Stenaptinus insignis. This is an example of the classic exploding bombardiers studied by Dr. Thomas Eisner and Dr. Andy McIntosh. It lives in Africa. Brachinus elongatilis. This is another example of the classic exploding bombardiers found in North America. Non-exploding bombardier beetles. Pausinae, around 400 species. These beetle species release their hot chemicals through two rearward pipes, flanges, sticking out the sides. The chemicals do not explode and usually come out as a spray. Metrius contractus. This unusual non-exploding bombardier secretes a hot foam, not a spray. It lives in North America. Platyrhopolis denticornis. This typical non-exploding bombardier emits a spray. It lives in India. An unlikely weapon. A toad, searching for an afternoon snack, spies a beetle sitting on a leaf. But before he can flick out his long, sticky tongue, his face is covered in a cloud of scalding, noxious chemical spray. He has just come face-to-face -face with a bombardier beetle. There's nothing like it in nature. And any sensible person knows that a tiny beetle less than an inch in size could never produce a controlled explosion by accident. It shouts an intelligent creator. All the parts had to be working from the start, not a product of step-by-step -step construction. Like a mousetrap won't work unless all the pieces are working together. The same goes for this supreme example of irreducible complexity. In fact, the bombardier beetle's blaster is so complex that scientists still don't fully understand how all the parts work. 1. Chemical Production Bombardier beetles are unique in their ability to superheat a liquid and expel it in an intense pulsating jet. It starts with two chemicals, hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone, produced in the secretory lobe and stored in the reservoir. Chemists still have not figured out how the insect produces the hydrogen peroxide, which is very unstable. 2. Reaction Chamber The two main chemicals do not react unless two other chemicals, known as catalysts, are present in the reaction chamber. How the beetle produces and stores these catalysts is still a mystery. The inner surface of the chamber is designed to withstand boiling temperatures produced by the reaction, 221 degrees Fahrenheit or 105 degrees Celsius. The flow and direction of chemicals must be controlled by a valve system in two stages. When the beetle is ready to fire, the inlet valve first opens, allowing the reactants to enter the chamber. Once the chamber is full and the chemicals react, the pressure pinches the inlet valve shut. At the same time, the growing heat and pressure forces the outlet valve open. After the ejection of each explosion of the hot pressurized fluid, the pressure drops and the valve closes. 3. Movable Turret The beetle can aim its turret in any direction, sending out repeated jets of stream through nozzles up to a stunning 65 feet, 20 meters per second. Scientists still don't know fully how the turret works. Actual size of the bombardier beetle is under 1 inch, 368 to 735 explosions per second. The spray isn't continuous. Instead, the beetle fires several bursts in rapid succession, which keeps the reaction chamber from overheating. 221 degrees Fahrenheit, the average temperature of the chemicals when released. Because the chemicals are under pressure, 
the temperature is higher than the boiling point of water, 212 degrees Fahrenheit. An explosive cocktail. Two common chemicals produce the beetle's boiling spray, but they need an extra push to explode. Hydrogen peroxide. This chemical, H2O2, is commonly kept in medicine cabinets to clean wounds. In the beetle's reaction chamber, a catalyst, called catalase, breaks the hydrogen peroxide down into water, H2O, free oxygen, O, and heat, hydroquinone. This bleaching agent, C6H6O2, is common in skin products to lighten skin. In the beetle's reaction chamber, a catalyst, called peroxidases, releases hydrogen, H. The hydrogen then combines to initiate a runaway steam explosion with the free oxygen, above. Irreducible complexity. Back in the 1970s, creationists latched onto the bombardier beetle as a premier example of irreducible complexity. Even before Dr. Michael Behe invented the term in his 1996 book, Darwin's Black Box, it refers to a system in which all the parts must be present and working together, or else the system fails. Just as a mousetrap won't snap shut unless all the pieces are working together, this beetle cannot blast predators unless all its parts are present and working together. Evolutionists try to argue that each individual part can be built stage by stage, but they must show how each of the chemicals offers an advantage by itself. Yet the hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone are of no use as explosives without the catalysts, peroxidase and catalase, to help the chemistry work fast enough. Well-known atheist Richard Dawkins mocked creationists back in the 1980s and 1990s for popularizing the bombardier beetle, as he still does today. In a lecture to children in 1991, he famously claimed that the bombardier beetle could have easily evolved by gradually adding more and more hydrogen peroxide. This could produce bigger and bigger explosions. But he set aside the hydroquinone, saying it was unimportant. And sure enough, hydrogen peroxide can be mildly explosive in small quantities and with the right catalyst. But in doing this, Dawkins failed to explain the chemistry of the beetle. The catalytic reaction of hydroquinone is critically important for an effective explosion. No one has shown how the system could evolve slowly. The chemistry is complex, but here are the basics. Breaking down hydroquinone produces hydrogen, which then combines with oxygen from the hydrogen peroxide to produce a runaway steam explosion. Andy concludes, In every respect, the bombardier beetle is irreducibly complex because the system will not work unless you have the chemistry right, the catalysts right, the inlet valve right, and the outlet valve right. Not to mention that the reaction chamber must be there to begin with, or else the beetle will blow itself to bits. After watching bombardier beetles in action for nearly 20 years, Andy knows they are one of the most obvious examples of irreducible complexity in all of nature. In fact, the bombardier beetle's blaster is so sophisticated in the way it senses and responds to danger, producing chemicals on demand, that scientists still don't fully understand how all the parts work. For instance, they would love to learn how this beetle produces hydrogen peroxide. If they could figure it out, it could lead to low-cost manufacturing of this essential chemical found in medicine cabinets, hair dyes, and military rockets. Far from hindering him, Andy's belief in creation and the Bible 
has helped him solve problems that nobody else was thinking of because he asked the right questions. As you look at biology and look at nature through Bible-believing eyes, you see things that biologists who are governed by evolutionary thinking often do not see. My belief in the creation perspective opened a whole new area of research. That article, titled The Mystery of the Exploding Beetle, is one of the most exciting articles I've ever published at the magazine. The Bombardier Beetle has fascinated me since I first heard of it just after college. The author, Melissa Webb, worked closely with Dr. McIntosh to put it together. He's just as funny and interesting as the article makes him sound, and I can't wait to see what more his research uncovers. There is a lot more to discover about the Bombardier Beetle and how humans mimic God's design in technology. Professor Andy McIntosh shows even more exciting discoveries in his DVD, The Extraordinary Bombardier Beetle. Get the DVD today. It's at AnswersBookstore.com. The story of the Bombardier Beetle shows how belief in the Creator helps scientists to ask the right questions and make new discoveries. The next article is the other side of the coin. Belief in the Creator helps scientists recognize the limits of science. Forensic clues do not always lead to an open and closed case. I was one of millions who watched Ken Ham's 2014 debate with Bill Nye the Science Guy. The topic was, is creation a viable model of origins in today's modern scientific era? As a medical pathologist who has done extensive forensic work, I could not wait to hear what both sides would say. I was shocked to see that my field of forensic science came up right out of the gate. Ken Ham, founder and CEO of Answers in Genesis, opened his arguments by differentiating between two kinds of science. Operational science, he said, invents medicine and technology by doing experiments in the present. Historical science, in contrast, relies on forensic science to reconstruct past events that we cannot observe, repeat, or test in the laboratory. Then Bill Nye took his turn to speak. He denied any distinction between experimental and forensic science, saying both types are the same. The distinction existed only in Mr. Ham's mind. Mr. Nye then gave the television show CSI as an example, implying that forensic science is as reliable as laboratory experimental science. Wait a minute, I thought. Yes, forensics is a useful tool and often gets the bad guy. But it has severe limitations, and overestimating its power can result in a tragic miscarriage of justice especially when it is wrongly elevated over truthful eyewitness testimony. My mind went back to a former case where I learned this lesson all too well. I like to call it the case of the bloodless bullet wound. One body, two wounds, no witnesses. In a tragic, all-too-familiar scene near Chicago, a lone man entered a store and encountered a group of men. They exchanged angry words, and then the lone man ran. The others gave chase and fired shots, and the lone man lay dead on someone's front lawn. At first, the authorities had no witnesses to the actual violence, only a dead body needing explanation and justice. I was called to perform the forensic autopsy. According to the autopsy, the victim, an otherwise healthy young man, had just two wounds, both from bullets, one in a leg, the other in his chest. The chest wound was fatal because the bullet had penetrated the heart and lungs, 
filling the chest cavity with several liters of blood. In striking contrast, the leg wound showed no bleeding at all, just a dry, round hole in the skin with marginal abrasion, the classic evidence of a penetrating bullet wound. The bullet was lost in muscle fibers like an arrow shot into tall grass, making it hard to recover. I spent a lot of time examining, probing, and dissecting this wound to find the bullet. The images of the wound at every angle were imprinted in my mind and made what happened afterwards so surprising. When performing a forensic autopsy, the first goal is to establish the cause and manner of death. Next, any questions about timing of wounds and death must be answered. Investigators need this information to determine the precise sequence of events leading up to death. In this case, the sequence of shots could rule out false theories and claims about the shooter's action and intent. Here, the big question was the order of the shots. Which came first? A clue was supplied by the bloodlessness of the leg wound. The difference between the wounds was so striking as to suggest that he was shot in the leg after his heart had stopped pumping blood. It's a time-honored maxim of forensic pathology that post-mortem wounds don't bleed. Exceptions occur, but it's generally reliable. If a healthy young person dies suddenly, sometimes the blood doesn't clot right away, so postmortem wounds can bleed. From what I knew of the history of this case, the shots must have been fired close together, but which came first? The physical evidence seemed to rule out the leg wound first. His blood pressure would have been elevated from running, so a leg wound, even just a few seconds before a heart wound, would produce at least some bleeding but there wasn't any. Accordingly, my report stated that the chest wound caused death, and the leg wound was post-mortem. It wasn't very clear why a second shot to the leg should have been fired, but when guys are brandishing guns and adrenaline is flowing, they sometimes accidentally pull a trigger. New eyewitness testimony. However, sometime later I received a call from the chief deputy coroner. He asked, Hey, Doc. How sure are you about the order of those bullet wounds? With a sinking feeling, I said, what's come up? Sure enough, an eyewitness had come forward and contradicted my careful scientific analysis. He said the deceased was first shot in the leg, bringing him down, and then shot in the chest. The shooter's intent was thus established clearly as homicidal, leaving no room for a claim of accident or self-defense. I told the deputy coroner to heed the eyewitness testimony and disregard my report about shot order. This case was a landmark for me in realizing the priority of eyewitness testimony. Analysis of the gunshot wounds could prove that someone died from a shooting. However, it couldn't give the correct order of events, nor could it show the shooter's intent. Only eyewitness testimony could do that. Similarly, science can be a useful tool to help show us that our world and the life in it was created. However, even good science cannot tell us the order and timing of creation events, nor can it necessarily tell us the character and intent of the Creator. We need the eyewitness testimony provided for us in God's Word to know this. Not an easy case. The case also reminded me that physical reality is always more complicated than our scientific theories and reconstructions. Indeed, this is just what we should expect if the universe around us is of infinite complexity, which in turn is what we should expect if a God of infinite knowledge and power created the universe. 
Both operational and forensic science are valuable tools, but Mr. Nye's view of science encourages blind faith that refuses to acknowledge the limits of science or scientists. Contrary to Mr. Nye's assertion, forensic science is extremely hampered by our inability to reproduce the past. Acknowledging our limits, as scientists, helps the cause of truth and avoids miscarriages of justice. The testimony of truthful witnesses can be invaluable. When done carefully and accurately, such testimony takes precedence over any lab work and independent analysis. Yet even then, we must be careful, because humans are sinful and imperfect. The need for eyewitness testimony is even more critical when it comes to the miraculous creation of the universe by God's Word, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which we could never recreate or study in the laboratory. God made sure to give mankind a flawless record of this central event in history, so we could know the truth about our origins and our need for the life-giver. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. How exciting that our Lord Jesus Christ testifies truthfully and is himself the truth. John chapter 14, verse 6. Revelation chapters 1 and 3 twice refer to him as the faithful and true witness. Human eyewitnesses can still make mistakes, but not Christ. He knows all that exists at every level of reality, at every point in time and eternity. This means we can, and must, trust His testimony about creation and everything else in life. He saw what happened at creation since He was there. If we trust in Him, He will open our eyes to eternal truths that are hidden from all who trust their own knowledge and skills. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. That article, The Case of the Bloodless Bullet Wound, was written by Dr. David Demick, a medical pathologist who's done 600 forensic autopsies. He knows firsthand the limits of science. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these articles, there are hundreds more at our website, AnswersMagazine.com. The links to today's articles are listed in our show notes, and I encourage you to subscribe to receive the magazine in your mailbox every other month. You will love that you're better able to share and defend your faith. I'm Dale Mason, publisher at Answers Magazine, and for the entire team, God bless.